don't know about you, but the Beatitudes are not easy. You know, I remember Vance Havner telling a story one time when somebody came up to him and said his preaching was too hard. And uh, they were complaining about the fact that he always seemed to be pounding like a hammer on people. And this lady walked up to him, obviously hadn't read her Bible lately, and um, she said, Dr. Havner, said, I just don't like all this hard preaching, and this is just all too hard. Why don't you tell us something the meek and lowly Jesus said? He said, all right. You are of your father, the devil. You're nothing more than a whitewashed tomb. Unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and Pharisees, you'll go to hell. You want to know anything else? <laughs> That's why I loved him. He just cut to the chase. <laughs> oh, me. All right, Matthew chapter 5, verse 2. The meek and lowly Jesus is speaking. And I tell you, people look at this and say, Oh, these are such nice words. You try to live them and find out how nice they are. They will cut out of you everything that you thought you could get by with. I mean, this if you want to make your life miserable on the way to being blessed, just try to live in the Beatitudes. Uh, it, it's going to hurt, but it's going to end up with a blessing. And so I, just like in anything, there has to be a discipline and there has to be a, a taking out so that God can put something in. He's not going to try to fill a half-full cup. He fills an empty cup. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. When John Wesley was doing mission work in Georgia, by the way, Wesley would be appalled at what's happened to the Methodist Church in America. He also, would also be appalled at what's happened to the Methodist Church in England when a large, thriving church in England runs 200. Wesley gave his life for something better than that. When Wesley was doing mission work in Georgia, that was my commentary, whatever you want to do with it. James Oglethorpe, who was at that time the governor of Georgia, caught one of his slaves stealing a jug of wine and drinking it. James Oglethorpe wanted to beat that slave for stealing his wine. John Wesley came to him and said, Sir, I plead for you that you have mercy on that slave. And the governor said, I want vengeance. I never forgive. And Wesley looked Governor Oglethorpe in the face and he said, Then, dear sir, I hope to God you never sin. If you will never forgive, you better never sin because that's the way God's going to treat you. I want us to look tonight at the struggle for truth in this area and it is easy for us to go to extremes on the subject of mercy. One extreme is no mercy at all. I mean, don't ever feel sorry for anybody. Don't ever go the second mile for anybody. Just... Cut, you know, it's Sherman's march through Georgia. 
burn everything in your path. Don't have mercy on anybody. Don't forgive anybody. Don't do anything. The other extreme is to be so merciful that you never judge and discern, that you, that you never think through, that you never look at the ramifications. Either extreme is wrong. When you look at doctrine in Scripture, doctrine is always balanced with another doctrine. And so what balances mercy is justice. God's mercy balances His justice, and God's justice balances His mercy. And in our lives, we have to know how to have a balance in those two. And sometimes what happens is we go and we pull a verse out of context, and we try to make it say what we want it to say that makes it easier for us than what it really says. For instance, turn to Matthew 7, verse 1. Matthew 7, verse 1. Do not judge, or else you too will be judged. Now, I've heard people use that verse in every distorted way imaginable. You know, somebody's out abusing their wife or their children or running around on their wife, and somebody says, well, you know, you can't judge. Where does that say that in the Bible? Paul said to the church at Corinth, you take that sucker and you kick him out of the church. And don't even go to Shoney's and eat with him. Can't go to Shoney's and eat with anybody anymore, but if we could, we couldn't go to Shoney's and eat with that person. You can go to Denny's, but it'll take about three hours to get your food. <laughs> what he says here is that we are, we are to not judge, or you too will be judged, but it was not a blanket statement that you tolerate evil. Let me just give you a couple of references. 1 John 4, 1. Test the spirits to see whether they are from God. What am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to judge what I hear being taught about the Word of God. Just because it comes from a preacher's mouth or just because it comes from behind a pulpit doesn't mean that it is consistent with the Word of God. There are a lot of people preaching and teaching today, some on television, some in local churches, that are teaching error and heresy. And you have to discern what's from God. Don't just take something and swallow it just because it came out of somebody's mouth who happens to be ordained. You're to test the spirits to see whether they're from God. Matthew 7, 20, By their fruits you will recognize them. You're to examine the spiritual fruit of others. Jesus didn't tell us to do that unless he meant for us to do it. And so we're to examine these things. Jesus never separated character from conduct. When Jesus talked to us about judging, he was saying that, that there is a standard by which you judge and a standard by which you don't, but you need to understand the context in which he tells those things. So what do you, let's go through the path. Poor in spirit, I recognize my bankruptcy. Blessed are those who mourn, I've grieved over my sin. My sin grieves me because I know it's grieved God. Those who are meek, now, I want to give you a new line for those who are meek. I don't know if it's in your notes or not, but I want to give you a new line. My ego has been fatally wounded. That's what a meek person is. A person whose ego has been fatally wounded. In other words, I have died to myself. I'm not seeking my rights, nor do I even resent when somebody tramples on my rights. That's meekness, and that's tough. Those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, they long for holy lives. Now, 
Remember, you're climbing a ladder. You've gotten up to this active one of hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Now we come, blessed are those who are merciful, for they shall receive mercy. But remember what is before that. Look at hunger and thirst. They shall be filled. Filled with what? Glad you asked. If I'm hungering and thirsting after righteousness, and I'm longing to be godlike, and I'm longing to be holy, and the passion and the desire of my life is to have the righteousness that God intends for me to have, not only positionally, but experientially, to walk in righteousness, then guess what happens? If I become that way, then I become merciful. Because God is a God of mercy and grace. God extended His grace and His mercy to us. It is because of His mercy that we even had the opportunity to be saved. So righteousness then leads to mercy. You got it? Okay, we're through then. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I would never let you out this early. <laughs> I don't have that kind of mercy. Let's look at the meaning of mercy. Now, you'll see in your notes there are three particular Greek words there for mercy. The first one speaks of pity and compassion that you have when a person is suffering. It is used in 2 Corinthians 1.3 when God is the Father of compassion. Colossians 3.12 says we are to clothe ourselves with compassion. We're to have compassion on people who are suffering. Let's not ever get so hardened by what we see on the news that we do not hurt when we see people hurting that when we see a disaster or when we see a crisis, that it doesn't stir our hearts, we've lost our compassion. Second word is a classical word, and it is used in Matthew 9:36, where it says of Jesus, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The third word is the word that Jesus uses here in Matthew chapter 7, and it has to do with the stronger of, it's the strongest version of these two, really, and it has to do with action steps that go along with our feelings. In other words, I don't just feel compassion for somebody. I do something about the need that I see. I take action. 1 John 3, 18. Let us love not only with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. Wesley said, if we felt for people in need, we ought to feel in our pockets. This word is closely related to steadfast love, uh, the Hebrew word for mercy and for steadfast love. What it means is an intimate identification with people in need. When I'm merciful, I take an intimate identification with people in need. Now turn to Philippians chapter 2 because that's exactly what Paul says Jesus did. God did not sit on the throne of heaven with his son standing by his right side and say, well, look at what humanity has done. Tough luck. Now they can fix it themselves. I'm going to make them sweat, and I'm going to make them squirm, and I'm going to make them pay. In fact, what he did was the opposite. He looked at his son, and his son said, I'll pay for them. His son hadn't sinned. His son knew nothing but glory. His son knew nothing but but the perfection that he experienced in heaven. But he came to earth, Philippians 2, 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You know why Jesus did that? Mercy. That's why he did it. He did not do that because you and I deserved it. He did not do that because he liked us more than people that haven't responded to that message. He did not do that because it felt good. In fact, it was such a bitter experience that when he comes to Gethsemane and the, the sweat drops of blood are coming off his forehead, he says to his father, Father, if there is any other way that I can do something, please let me do it. Jesus went to the cross not because it was a wonderful experience that we could put on a piece of jewelry. Jesus went to the cross to die an agonizing death so that he could show us mercy when he should have shown us judgment. God should have said, that's it, you've had it, you don't get a choice, you don't get an option, I'm wiping you all out. And he would have been just and right to do that. And he had every right to do that. God has every right according to his holiness and his standards and his sinlessness. God has every right to say to me, you don't get a choice, you don't get a chance, you've got so many mess-ups in your life, you're through, you're going to hell. He has every right to say that to me. I couldn't do enough good to get God to look on me with favor, but he did. Why? Because he's a God of mercy. Now, let me just ask you just to make sure we're all okay here. How many of you understand that there's nothing you can do to get in God's good graces? Does everybody understand that? Guess how you got in God's good grace? Mercy. God's mercy allowed you the opportunity to come into his presence. It is by God's mercy that he listens to our prayers. It is by God's mercy that he intervenes on our behalf. It is by, it's not because we're such nice people. Yeah, it's not because we're Southern Baptists. I mean, I've met people that think God owes us everything because we're Southern Baptists. What he owes us is to, is to eliminate us based on the way we act. It's not because a person's Pentecostal or Charismatic or Methodist or Lutheran. None of that brings the mercy of God. God doesn't look at labels. God judges labels. If a label's not Jesus Christ, then it's going to be judged. And so God calls us to himself. Now, what does mercy look like? Mercy, first of all, not all mercy is motivated by godliness. There is a lot of humanitarian work that goes on in the world today, and I'm grateful for it. America has been known for so long for its humanitarian work. You know, it is amazing. And, and let me tell you, let me just kind of, give background for this. The world will never recognize this, but the only reason that a country like the United States would ever go back and rebuild Europe after we bombed it to smithereens is because we had basic virtues and principles in our lives that said we will help people in need. And so Americans, after spending millions upon millions and millions of dollars to win a war, spent millions upon millions of dollars under the Marshall Plan and flew supplies into countries that we had bombed out. Why? Because in our founding fathers and in our heritage, 
there is that understanding of helping people who are helpless. But you know, you can do that and not be saved. You can be very humanitarian in your efforts. You can be involved in, in helping a community. I mean, you can do Meals on Wheels. You can do a lot of ministries and a lot of good and not have a motive out of God's heart. A lot of people do that, quite frankly, because they're trying to work their way to heaven. If I do enough good, if I help enough people, then surely God will love me and God will let me have a home in heaven. A lot of people have a works-oriented salvation and they're doing humanitarian work with a mixed motive. I'm doing this so I find favor with God and He'll let me go to heaven. A lot of people do it and it's commendable, but it's not biblically motivated. People do it because it's just what we ought to do. You know, a lot of people helped in the flood recovery here a number of years ago because it was the right thing to do. I mean, good, decent people, we ought to do something about this. We ought to help. But not all help was biblically motivated, and not all mercy is biblically motivated. You see, it, it can flow out of a fallen nature and a desire to get approval. There are some people who help other people because they want a pat on the back. But let's look at the characteristics of godly mercy. Godly mercy is, first of all, mercy is balanced with judgment. John 3, 17. John 3, 17. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. Mercy balances judgment. Is that two sides of the same coin issue? Secondly, mercy is always ready to forgive. Mercy is always ready to forgive. Now, we've talked about this before, but you remember what Jesus said? Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. You say, well, yeah, that was Jesus. Uh, funny, I seem to remember Stephen saying the same thing while he was being stoned by religious people. Lord, don't hold this to their account. Mercy is always ready to forgive. Now, I have to admit to you, I'm not always ready to forgive. Sometimes it takes me a little bit of time. Sometimes i got to work. Sometimes that's not the first thought that comes to my mind. I, I was sitting praying before the service started tonight on the front row, and, and God brought a story to mind that I have not thought about in a long time. And uh, I, I question a little bit whether I should share it, but, you know, when the Lord brings it to mind, you ought to share it. So uh, I had left uh, Spartanburg, South Carolina, and was uh, on my way to uh, Roswell Street Baptist Church in Marietta as youth minister. And there was a gentleman in that church that uh, had once been a friend. And we had played golf together, but something happened in our relationship, and it went sour, and it went south. And I really didn't know all of this. And about six months after I'd been at Roswell Street, uh, Nelson Price, who was a pastor, said, Michael, let's go to lunch. So we went to lunch that day, and very unusual. For, usually when Nelson took you to lunch by himself, it was a come to Jesus talk. And you just kind of dreaded that and you looked forward to the day it would be somebody else going. And uh, But we went to lunch and he didn't say a thing. We just talked and how's the ministry going? How do you feel the kids are doing? Blah, blah, blah. We're having this generic ministerial conversation. We got all the way back to the church and we got out of the car and he put his arm around me and he said, have I ever told you about the phone call I got the night before you were here and gave a call? And I said, no, sir, you haven't. This is now six months I've been at the church. 
at Roswell Street, Nelson Price was it. If Nelson Price said you're going to be on staff, that's it. You're on staff. Doesn't matter what anybody else said. That's just the way it was. He said, well, I got this phone call about 10 o'clock at night. He said it was from this gentleman, and he named the name of the man that I referred to earlier. And he said, he called me and for 30 minutes tried to talk me out of calling you and told me all this stuff and gave, gave me all these stories and he said, you don't need to call him. You know, he's not a good guy. You don't need to do this. And how dare you call him? He's not a man of God. I mean, he just went on and on and on. And he said, I listened to him for about 25 or 30 minutes. And I said, dear brother, I have to preach God's word tomorrow. And if I keep listening to you, I'm not going to be able to do it. Thank you. Good night. And he hung up. And I had never known that that conversation had taken place. And Nelson believed in me when there was somebody giving him the opportunity to not believe in me. Now, here's the hook on the story. About a year and a half after I found that out, we were back in Spartanburg and went back to that church. Guess who one of the first people I ran into was? That guy. And I can tell you tonight, he still doesn't know that I know. And he never will. Because that's over. And you see, what he meant for evil, God meant for good. And so if God can overcome his conniving, then God can give me the power to forgive him for his conniving. You see, you just got to believe your God's bigger than the people who are against you. You just got to believe your God is bigger than the circumstances that you're facing or the people who are opposed, and then you, you're free to forgive because it's not your problem, it's God's problem. If you believe that mercy is always ready to forgive. Now, thirdly, mercy is ready to meet a need. That's the story of the Good Samaritan. These two religious guys, Southern Baptist pastors, walking down the road, on their way to the convention. Make sure they stop by the Baptist bookstore, get all the latest commentaries. See this guy laying over on the side of the road, and he's wiped out, beaten up. First Southern Baptist pastor says, well, I tell you what, you know, he said, I've got a nominating committee meeting, and I've got to make that committee meeting because it's important who we put on committees in our denomination. So he passes by on the other side. Second guy comes by and says, you know, i got my buddies, and we're going to go to about two sessions, and we're going to go play golf and go eat charge it to the church, so i got to make sure I get there in time to do that. And he passes by on the other side. Samaritan comes by, who was treated like a dog by the religious leaders, who was considered a sorry human being, not even treated like a human being. And he sees this person laying in a ditch, and he goes over and he mends him up, and he helps him, and he ministers to him, and he picks him up, and he takes him to an inn, that inn is still standing, by the way, on the road between Jerusalem and Jericho. You can go there and see the place where the Samaritan took this man. And he took him in, and he paid his bill, his hotel bill. He left his American Express card there. He said, whatever else he needs, just put it on my tab. I'll settle up with you when I get back. And the Scripture says in Luke chapter 10, he had mercy on him. Now, here's what most of us would do. We'd go by and say, there's a guy, you know, if they've beaten up one guy, they're going to beat up another one. 
kind of looks like a Jew to me, so since he's a Jew and I'm a Samaritan, if it was me, he'd leave me laying there. He wouldn't do anything for me. I mean, I'm just a dog to him. He, he, in fact, he'd probably come over and kick me just to see if I was alive. So I'm not going to do anything for him, but that's not what the Samaritan did. Jesus took the Samaritan story, and he says in Luke 10, 37, he had mercy on him. You see, mercy is ready to meet a need. I show mercy because I've been shown mercy. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 17. If anyone has... Let, let's, let's turn there. I want you to see this because I want you to see the, the structure of this verse. 1 John 3, 17. Now, what Jesus is doing in 1 John 3, 17... He, he is, through John, through the Holy Spirit, he is asking a question that demands no response. Read it if you would. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? It's a question, it's a statement, really, that does not demand a response. The answer is he can't. If I see a person in need and I don't do anything to meet that need and I've got the ability to help meet that need, then the love of God cannot be in me. It's impossible for it to be in me. First John is a brutal book on our actions because it makes us evaluate our Christianity. It not only cannot, it does not reside in us. If I see someone in need and have no pity on them, no effort on my part to do anything on their behalf, then I don't have mercy and the love of God doesn't dwell in me. Do you know that God is more concerned about us exhibiting Christianity than he is about us expounding it? I want to tell you, there are people in this church that show Christianity to this community a lot more than I do. They meet needs, they do things for other people, and they never ask for attention. They never ask for their name to be put in the bulletin. They never ask for recognition. They just do it. There are needs that are met all across this community, and, and many of them I never even know about, or I hear about them, about them months later. God comes up and uses somebody to meet a need in somebody's life, and, and you know why I know it's a God thing? They don't worry about if it made it on their giving record or not. They just do it. They got $20 in their pocket and somebody needs $20 and they got another $20 somewhere else and they just say, here, you take this and you go with it. And they don't walk around telling everybody, look what I did for God. I gave $20. You know, look what I did. Everybody, give me your attention. Let me show you what I've done. No, you see, mercy is ready to meet a need and it never draws attention to itself when it does it. Number four, mercy is focused on the whole person. Now go back to Matthew chapter four. We looked at this in the first message on the Beatitudes, but I want you to notice how Jesus focuses on the whole person. Matthew four and verse 23. Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. Verse 35. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming 
the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. It is not Christianity if it's only limited to preaching or teaching. Jesus didn't just go and preach a sermon and leave. He went and he touched people at the point of their needs. He taught them, he preached to them, but he healed them. He met their needs. He fed them when they were hungry. He gave them water. He was at the wedding and they ran out of wine and so he made new wine. Now, I know Baptists want to get in an argument about that. Whatever kind of wine it was, it was a miracle. We debate about whether it was real or not real or what. You know what? Can I just tell you, I don't care. I just know I've never met anybody that could do that other than Jesus Christ. Mohammed can't do it. Buddha can't do it. Confucius can't do it. Transcendental meditation people can't do it. Joseph Smith can't do it. Jehovah's Witness can't do it. The Mormons can't do it. You know, there's only one person that's ever done that. When you find somebody that can change water into wine with the snap of a finger, then I tell you what, I'll listen to him. But if he can't do that, then he's not God. Because God did that. And so he, he, Jesus is the one that, that changes and he touches these people. And when you, when you look at the history of Christianity, I'm talking about New Testament Christianity. I'm not talking about the, the perverted versions and the distorted versions of Christianity that sometimes get displayed. But if you go back and study church history, you will find that prison reform began as a movement of the church, that the abolition of the slave trade began as a movement within the church, that the prohibition of slavery began as a movement within the church, that the factory acts and child labor laws were all started by people who were believers who were within the church, that the Red Cross, the YMCA, organizations that are involved in good all had their birth with a Christian motive. God wants us to focus on the whole person. That's why we do a lot of the things we do. That's, that's why we have upwards. That's why we have a family life center. Why? Because we're going to reach people where they are. If, if we're waiting for everybody to come hear me preach, they're never going to come. Because I, 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 I don't know anybody that's that good. But you know what? You're going to get somebody, and he's got a need. He doesn't want to be out every night of the week at a ball practice. And so he says, oh, I can go to Upwards. That's a couple of nights, shortens my schedule. I can get my kids involved in that. And guess what? He may not have a clue about what he wants to do about God. He might not have had a thought about ever entering a church, but he comes within the boundaries of the church, and we get to minister to him with a need with his family but we ultimately get to talk to him about his relationship with Christ. So that's why you do what you do. Not just because we're trying to keep the calendar busy, but we're trying to make it as an outreach. Number five, mercy is illustrated in how we treat others. Now we go to Matthew 7. Mercy is illustrated in how we treat others. Matthew chapter 7, and I want to read following verse 1. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. 
First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. I want you to read with me the quote by Warren Wiersbe that's in your notes. There are several factors that are involved in this experience of mercy, and and the reason this long quote is in your notes is because it ate my lunch when I read it. So I thought, I shouldn't have to do this alone. Somebody else needs to go through it. It begins with pain. Someone hurts us unjustly, and we must respond to this hurt. If we have no power, then all we can do is give in. But if we have the power to retaliate, then we must decide what to do. You cannot show mercy. This is an incredible statement. You cannot show mercy unless you have the power to hurt. At this point, love enters the picture. Not to cancel truth, but to control it. We are hurt, we have the power, and we think the right to hurt the one who hurt us. But because of God's love, we show mercy. We do not give the offender what he deserves. This demands faith. We must leave the offender and his offense in the hands of God. So mercy is illustrated in how we treat others. Chuck Swindoll says that there's a game that we Christians play that we love to play, one of our favorite indoor games. It's called Let's Label. Let's Label. Let me give you these six rules for playing this game and see if, by chance, you have either played them or you have had the game played on you. To play this game, you have to find somebody who's different than you, which is everybody. So you have six rules to play the game. Number one, find something you don't like about another person. Find something you don't like about another person. Now, every one of us can find in every person that we've ever met or ever will meet something that we don't like. Do we all agree on that? We're all different. God made us different. That's just the way it is. Secondly, examine the externals because after all, you can't see their heart. So you don't know what their heart is, so the best thing to do is just look at them on the outside, on the externals, what you can see. The third rule is form a negative and critical opinion. Once you have found something you don't like and you've examined the person on their externals, now you begin to form a negative and critical opinion of that person. Number four, jump to several inaccurate conclusions. This is a fun game. We've all played it. And a lot of us are good at it. Jump to several inaccurate conclusions. Number five, mentally stick a label on that person because that saves time and then you don't have to ask for details. Mentally stick a label on the person. And number six, share your feelings and your findings with everybody you can. Share your feelings and your findings with everybody you can. Now, anybody here besides me ever played Let's Label? The rest of you are lying. I'm labeling you right now. <laughs> sure we have. I mean, we see somebody, we sit there, you know, and, you know, 
we can kind of look at them and go, that person's an idiot. And I'm going to tell everybody I know that they're an idiot. Nobody with a brain above a rock would do that. I'm going to tell you what, it's hard to be merciful on dumb people because God made so many of them. If you don't believe it, read the opinion polls in America. I mean, do you have a hard time being merciful to the people you see on television? I, I mean, I watch some of that stuff, and I, I, if I didn't have a prayer closet, I'd die. I mean, I just, you know, I, I want to talk to, you know, Elvis was right. Get a gun and shoot the TV. <laughs> of course, he had the money to replace his, so I just have to turn mine off. Jesus says, don't do that. You don't know all the facts. You can't judge their motives. You will never be completely objective. And when he talks about judging, the word there means to separate. It is the picture of a judge who takes information in a case and separates the information and the testimonies out and renders a verdict. Jesus says, don't get in there and start rendering verdicts on other people's lives. Now, why did he give us this warning? Two things, and then we're through. Number one, what you give, you'll get. What you give, you will get. Now, let me ask you to turn to Matthew 12, 36. I'm waiting on a translation of the Bible that this verse is not in it. But I tell you, Matthew 12, 36, but I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an account for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. You ever wish those verses weren't in the Bible? I mean, you, you ever wish you'd get some white out and just say, Lord, you didn't, I, I know you didn't mean it, but, but you know why those verses are there? This is my humble opinion, which I highly respect. I'll tell you why those verses are there, to stop hallway murmuring in Baptist churches. I want to tell you, the worst place for gossip in the world is in churches. And the reason that lost people won't come to church is because they hear Christians running down other Christians in the workplace and gossiping and talking about people because it's easier to talk about people than it is to pray for them. And so we flippantly and we carelessly run down people and other people hear it, and guess what? We're condemned because we've condemned those people that have listened to us to say, well, if that's what Christianity is, I don't want anything to do with it. And there, I, I tell you, this would wipe out a lot of... Our phone bills would go down. You could go to the lowest plan on your cell phone if you just didn't talk about other people. Uh, this would be kind of be, hey, how you doing? Great, how are you? Fine. Did you hear about... No, I can't talk about that. Have you heard? Mm, can't do that. Well, I don't really have anything to say. I guess I'll talk to you later. Bye. They'd kill it. But you see, we... Jesus says, you better watch what you say because I'm going to remind you of the words that you've said. And I want to tell you something, folks. That hurts. 
that's an ouch. Because we would like to believe that the only people that hear our words are the people that hear us here. But our words from our lips go straight to the ear of God. And it would change our churches if we would just believe that these verses in Matthew 12 are really a part of the Bible. Secondly, not only what you give, you'll get, but secondly, if you make yourself judge and jury, you can't plead for mercy. If you make yourself judge and jury, you can't plead for mercy. Matthew chapter 18 and verse 21. It's a very familiar story, but I want to read it, and then we've got about one minute to spend on the last point. Matthew 18 and verse 21. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my, brother, shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Now, Peter was being generous. He was being very generous. I mean, Peter was sitting back going, man, there's nobody that can forgive seven times. I mean, it, this is it. And Jesus says to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Immeasurable, uncountable is the point he's trying to get. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents, let's say that would be a million dollars in today's economy, was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had in repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of the slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, and he seized him, maybe ten cents or a dollar, and he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. Same words. He used the same words. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Man owes $10 million, and the Lord says, that's it, don't worry about it. He goes out and finds somebody that owes him a dollar, and he says, I'm going to make you pay me back, and it's going to hurt. <laughs> Isn't that just like us sometimes? I mean, we come to church, and we've been forgiven of all of our sin, all of our thoughts, all of our lust, all of our evil intents, all of our anger, all of our uh, revenge, all of our retaliation, 
all of our blaspheming, all of our cursing, all of our lying, all of our stealing, all of our coveting, and it's all been washed under the blood of Jesus Christ. And we've been forgiven of that, and we sing about it, and we praise God for it, and then we go out and somebody moves something on our desk at work and say, I hate it when they do that. And we hold them to a higher standard than we want God to hold us to. Folks, listen. You get what you dish out. You dish out mercy, you're going to get mercy. You dish out justice at all costs, you're going to get justice at all costs. See, yeah, sometimes you just got to leave it with the Lord. And you just got to say, Lord, I know what I want to do, but I'm not going to do that. An act of my will, I'm going to ask you to give me the power to forgive and forgive the debt that is owed to me. So the motive is they shall receive mercy. By its very definition, mercy cannot be earned. We don't do this to receive mercy in return. What he's saying is the more mercy you give, the more mercy you get. Every time I act in mercy, God gives me more mercy. Now, does anybody here tonight want the judgment of God? If you have a choice tonight between the judgment of God and the mercy of God, which one would you choose? What you give, you get. And this week, somebody is going to walk into your life and rain on your parade and just get on your last nerve, and you're just going to go, boy, I tell you what, I'd just like to get them and rip their stinking head off. Just remember, God could have ripped your stinking head off, and he didn't do it. Boy, this is tough. I don't like this. I mean, I, don't, I like to get it. <laughs> I just don't like to give it. You understand? I mean, you understand what I'm saying? I, I mean, I like to get the mercy of God. I just don't want to give it to anybody else. And God says, what you dish out, that's what's going to come back to you. What you give, that's what you're going to get. Aren't you grateful? that God did not give us what we deserved, then on the same hand, we don't always have to give those who hurt us what they deserve. We can turn the other cheek. We can go the second mile. We can forgive it and let God settle the record books. I'll tell you something, folks. You'll be miserable all your life if you try to get even. You'll end up with an ulcer. You'll die of a heart attack. You'll be miserable and you'll be bitter if you try to get even. God has to settle those scores. What we need tonight is a great outpouring of the mercy of God to remind us that when we leave this place and go out this week, when somebody offends us or hurts us or wrongs us, that 
maybe we need to remember that we've offended and hurt and wronged the Lord. So maybe we need to respond differently. That's a little hard for a country where everybody's screaming for their rights. But you see, if I've died to myself, I don't have to worry about my rights because I have an advocate in heaven who is my defense attorney and he pleads my case. I don't have to plead my case. I don't have to convince God whether I'm right or not. I just simply have to take my case before him and say, Lord, here it is. How do you want me to respond to this? And then he begins to overflow us with mercy. When left to ourselves, we'd go back to eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. The law of the West, the last man standing wins. And God is never honored when we do that.